Welcome to Media Futures Spotlights, a series exploring the great research coming out of the Media Futures Hub at UNSW Sydney. I'm Dr. Astrid Laronge, your host for today, and I'm speaking to you from unceded Wongal country in what is now called Sydney, Australia. I acknowledge the unbroken sovereignty of this land, as well as the long history of resistance against settler colonialism led by First Nations peoples. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My guest today is Danielle Hines, a PhD candidate in the School of the Arts and Media and a researcher in the Media Futures Hub. We're going to talk about Danielle's doctoral research, which considers how the smart city of the future is imagined and how in this imagined future, social housing and the people who live in it are neglected. We'll chat about smart cities, social housing, data justice, and much more. Danielle Hines, welcome to the Media Futures podcast. Thank you very much, Astrid. So to begin, what's actually meant by this term smart city? Your research considers the smart city both in terms of policy and planning and also as a kind of imaginary or a future yet to come. So what is a smart city and who is doing the imagining? So the smart city is most often associated with technology in, in cities um, and so the use of technology in urban settings. My research, as you know, coming from a critical standpoint, has looked at a lot of the issues with the smart city. And one of the kind of major ones is that the smart city is often described as um, led by private companies um, and driven by profit. So with smart city projects, there's often a need for kinds of expertise in technology that government is, does, is not often not equipped with. And so it necessitates public-private partnerships, and there's kind of a number of issues around those um, with kind of reducing democratic accountability, with making things less transparent because a lot gets locked behind kind of commercial confidence um, information, so it can be difficult to examine what's happening there. And so the smart city is often associated with these kind of things. And at the same time, it is being pursued in Australia and around the world. Various councils are developing smart city strategies. The Australian government has um, 18. They had the um, smart cities fund with, um, I think, $100 million or so for smart cities projects around the country. And it's uh, something that also, you know, even Dubbo is in the process of developing a smart city strategy. So that's across, across the country is something that's being pursued. And it's definitely not the only thing a smart city is. And when you ask people um, who aren't involved with the smart city, what a smart city means to them, which I have been doing in my research recently. It's, it was surprising to me how often people would talk about things that had nothing to do with technology. So what the word smart meant to them. I mean, it was often about connectedness, about sustainability. And so I think what my research is looking to dig into is what does the smart city mean in practice and kind of what is it being sold as? Mm, that's so interesting. The the distinction, I guess, between how people who live in cities perceive smartness and then this kind of um, top-down idea of smartness that's been rolled out in, in sort of policy and planning. And we might kind of get into a little bit of, of that as we go on. But I want to now ask you about the sort of focus, I guess, of your research into smart cities, which is the presence or absence, rather, of social housing in the imagined um, future of the smart city. So why do you think this is the case? Um, why is, the, is social housing left out of the conversation? And what is the consequence for this imagined future in which social housing is not 
adequately planned for. So yeah, I did start out my project with an interest really at looking at the way that datafication, which means the way that um, various aspects of our lives are translated into data, the way that datafication was affecting social housing, coming in with an assumption that that was happening. And I'd read a few examples of some pretty shocking examples of that happening in other countries. So in the US, public housing building was using facial recognition um, for residents to gain entry to their homes rather than keys. So I wasn't very familiar with what was happening here and thought maybe I'd find something like that and see what was kind of the implications of that for the people who live there. And yes, instead of kind of finding these examples, I found a lot of smart city strategies and almost no mention of social housing, some mention of affordable housing, which is something else, but no mention of social housing, which led to the focus I've ended up with. So yes, I think that while the smart city um, and technology and cities, smart regions, smart urbanism is being pursued as something very desirable um, and future oriented and kind of even fun and playful, social housing in Australia is and has been treated for decades as something that is outdated and has been neglected by successive governments at various levels, state um, and federal. So I think that while there's this kind of massive push for smart cities and there's this complete move away from uh, social housing, it's a real risk that this important aspect of our housing system, which there are myriad problems with, will be kind of left behind. What's the consequence of the continued neglect of social housing? You know, what is the consequence if we have this imagined future um, and this sense of what the smart city promises? What is the consequence if we, if we continue to neglect social housing in that conversation um, as well as in that imagined future? I guess it's a, a perpetuation of the neoliberalisation of society, really, in a way, um, which is so much wider than this. It feels to me like one aspect of not basing our society around caring for people and kind of seeing people as humans who deserve to have things like housing and instead seeing it as something that is an individual's responsibility. Um, and if you are not able to meet the mutual obligations that Centrelink or FACS demands of you, then that's kind of on you. And I think that that is horrifying and I kind of I guess struggle to put it in kind of more academic terms at times. Yeah it's interesting you know I think that idea of housing as as a human right is really difficult to see as a shared value in a city like Sydney in which all sorts of variations of housing crises overlap and intensify and deepen every single day and that sort of leads on to my my next question which you know I think partially you've covered but I think the question of housing in general, it, it's such a vital concept or figure to think through all sorts of issues, infrastructural, political, social, cultural, and environmental, and this sort of extraordinarily unequal access to what actually kind of sustains and supports life defines our particular moment in history and certainly comes into full light with housing as an issue. Um, so from your perspective and as a researcher in this area, how important is it to keep housing front and centre in any discussion of Sydney in particular and, and its future? To me, it is, it is really, really vital. I think, as, as you know, um, we both live in Sydney. I live on Gadigal land in Surrey Hills right now. The problems are huge and 
I think if people aren't able to have that base to to live their life, it um, perpetuates like kind of every other problem. Well, not problem. I don't know. You know, you need a kind of a, a firm base to be able to to live your life from, um, and a, a stable base. And even living in private rentals, like in New South Wales, um, we still have no fault evictions for uh, private landlords can evict people if they want to. Yeah, I suppose that sometimes the housing problems can feel insurmountable. I suppose. I guess it feels like in Australia, there is a really a strongly felt conceptualization of housing as an investment that I, I get the sense that people think of housing as a place to put your money and to get more money, more so than a place to live your life. And that overcoming or changing or challenging that conception of housing to me seems really vital to changing the broader, I guess, imaginary around housing in Australia as a place uh, where people live rather than as a commodity. Yeah, that's such a, a deep understanding of housing um, in Australia and in Sydney in particular and comes to define everyday conversations that you have in Sydney as well as the sort of cliche of um, what Sydney-siders are obsessed with and preoccupied by in their, in their daily life and conversations. I want to come back to data and to to data justice, which um, is a term I'll I'll ask you to um, unpack in a moment. So part of what I find really interesting about your project is the way you describe it as sort of approaching this problem of social housing's absence from the imagined future city through the lens of data justice. So can you describe what data justice is and means and how it offers you a way to do your research? So data justice is a term that's, I guess you'd describe it as an emerging field. And it refers to taking a social justice lens to question the implications of ubiquitous datafication. So taking things like the example I mentioned earlier of social housing residents needing to use facial recognition in the lobby of their building to gain entrance to their homes rather than a key, and then looking at the implications of that through a social justice lens. So practically what that means for research is like, well, the what I see as the core part of it is people who are most impacted by these developments as the starting point for the research and centering them throughout. And so that is one aspect. And another is kind of looking at the various social justice implications. So the a few of the social justice theorists that drawn upon a lot in data justice research are Nancy Fraser and the idea of um, abnormal justice, Amatia Sen and the capability approach, and Iris Marion Young and the politics of difference, um, and using these kind of ideas to look at these issues of datafication. Um, and I think this can at times be a pretty almost radical um, way to look at things because often problems, not problems, but I guess developments in technology can be looked at as kind of apolitical as and as neutral issues of data and numbers, computers, technology can be seen as like, that's just the way things are. This is just a fact. Yeah, so data justice is kind of challenging that and taking a more political approach that questions some of those assumptions. Yeah, great. Thank you. I know that in your project, you engage with some different sort of research methodologies. So you do analysis of media around smart cities, you do analysis of policy around smart city planning, but you also do interviews with people. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about 
the interviews that you've been doing and who you've been talking to and and how you've been structuring those conversations and and sort of what some of the the key insights that have emerged have been my research as i'm sure many things in the world were um, my research was a bit turned around by the COVID 19 pandemic um, i had planned to begin participant observation of large gatherings <laughs> in like I think I got ethics approval in May 2020 so I had to restructure my research design a little bit which has presented a little bit of a, a challenge um, and kind of core aspect of rethinking the research design was how to continue centering kind of a data justice approach um, which has proved difficult at times so yes recently I have conducted interviews which um, has been a very different experience from what I expected. Given the pandemic, all of the interviews I've conducted have been online with people who I've never met before. There's been a, two different groups. My research, I was originally planning to have three um, different kind of participant groups, but I have ended up in so far speaking with two, which are housing providers and policymakers. So this is people who work for um, community housing providers, which are non-government organizations that provide house, social housing and policymakers, which is very broad, can include ex-bureaucrats, MPs. I haven't spoken with anyone who works for, for FACTS yet. And also with people who provide support and advocacy services for social housing residents. So advocacy bodies that campaign to fix some of the problems with housing affordability of which there are a few quite um, large and active around Sydney and also who provide services like legal aid um, and advocacy to tenants. In talking to these various people throughout the interviews um, I've been focusing on how they conceive of the social housing system and how they think of the future of it and also what the impacts of datafication are in the sector and overall I'm have to say it's been fairly grim yeah the the housing situation in Sydney not just Sydney um, but Australia really bad <laughs> trying not to swear on the podcast and it seems like people have been campaigning for a long time for quite small changes and even those small changes are pretty much I don't want to say unachievable because it sounds too defeatist too cynical but it's like even this relatively small asks in this scheme of what problems we are facing are not something that is really realistic so when I asked one person who worked for a community housing provider what a fair and just like to them their first answer which I, it makes sense you know you're working there day in and day out that you're thinking of what's possible but their first answer was that there would be a more effective eligibility system so they could more accurately figure out who needs housing the most and let those people into the housing that we have um and i guess it was just immediately surprising to me as a researcher obviously coming from a very different perspective that the first thought wouldn't be that there's just more housing so we don't need to do that we don't need to make sure it's only the most neediest of the needy the most complex complex um situations that are able to have a permanent safe place to live for not everybody who needs it yeah it's really it's interesting isn't it when you start thinking about the future what we imagine as as the kind of world we want to live in how constrained sometimes our vision of that future can be by the sort of reality of um of this world and i think it, you know it's a really interesting thing to reflect on as part of your research i assume you know when you were just talking then about the 
impact of COVID-19 on, on your research and, you know, you speaking to two out of three groups that you were hoping to speak to by this point in your project, I assume that the third group, you know, are people who live in social housing and that the restrictions on entering people's homes and being intimate with people in their in their daily life has um, impacted your capacity to do what you need to do in this project. And it sort of makes me sort of reflect on the impact that the pandemic and, and subsequent lockdowns have had, you know, really on people in social housing have really been kind of radically impacted by uneven and um, severe and highly policed approaches to lockdowns. And I'm just wondering if, if you could reflect a little bit of, about the pandemic and how it's um, obviously kind of prohibited aspects of your research, but also no doubt has actually kind of uh, reoriented some of the focus of what you're actually reflecting on in terms of social housing today. If you could speak a little bit about the pandemic itself, I'd be really interested. So part of what uh, I ended up with reorienting my project was doing um, analysis of newspaper articles published throughout 2020 from six Australian papers. And I decided to do that media analysis in, in May, around the time that the government scheme home builder was announced um, that was a construction package that didn't give any money to social housing and later that year the nine public housing towers in victoria were put under an incredibly strict lockdown which was yes as you said highly uneven really pretty shocking to kind of witness so the nine public housing towers um were put under lockdown they didn't receive any warning that they were going to be put under lockdown and it was um, an incredibly strict lockdown so people could not leave to get food or to do anything they had frozen meals dropped outside their homes yeah there were pretty yeah shocking photos of those meals sitting on the ground on like a paper a wet paper towel from the, the food defrosting it's like a big community kind of organization effort to get food and medicine um nappies to the people living in the towers and that was made difficult as well by people running it and so that was one obviously as i was doing this media analysis i was seeing these articles kind of come out continuously and just seeing the amount of media coverage on social housing last year if you go go onto factiva right now um, and search social housing for over the last 10 years and you'll see the spike in last year is just like off like very large <laughs> so there was this really uneven response um, and it's the way that social housing residents are kind of thought of and treated in Australian society. I suppose Victorian government felt like they could do that. And then the New South Wales government had a similar lockdown of the common ground social housing building in, I think it's in Glebe or Camperdown and residents there were the amount of alcohol that they were allowed to have put into the building was restricted and it's just this kind of I suppose paternal uh, way of treating social housing residents that would just not be acceptable for close to to many other um, members of society that has kind of been really made clear uh, through the pandemic so I suppose yes you guessed correctly the third group was going to be social housing residents so it's been strange to kind of be in this position of watching this unfold, but not having social housing residents directly informing the research. Yeah, it's been such an, I guess, an interesting period in which the, yeah, the pandemic's kind of intensification of the crisis of social reproduction, it both kind of makes the home this very contested site for living through the pandemic, but also precludes us from 
being together in 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 homes which which is I, I guess has added a really troubling as well as research producing dimension to the work that you do I'd like to just maybe ask one final question you've sort of answered this I guess in reflecting on some of the interviews that you're doing but perhaps I just invite you to to answer this question now from your perspective as a researcher and as you I guess as we come out of this moment of um, lockdown into this this new sort of city um, which is really defined by this hope for um, higher vaccination rates allowing for a more public life and as you come into this period of your PhD where you start to reflect on the materials that you've gathered and the analysis that you've done I want to ask you about this alternative vision of how we might live together more justly in a world increasingly threatened by these enormous interconnected crises of climate change, of extracted capitalism, of kind of ever-widening wealth equality, all of which really come to impact us in our homes and through the kind of infrastructure of housing. So what are some alternative visions from your perspective and at this point in your research and how urgent are they in reshaping a livable future? Yes, that is an excellent question. And I feel like kind of the question that my, all of my research is, is oriented towards. One thing that I've come across that I think could be a really promising way to reorient how we think about housing in particular is um, an idea from Emma Power another academic of housing as an infrastructure of care that's around this idea of reorienting how we think about housing, not as a commodity as we were talking about before, but um, as this aspect of care that's really core to every other part of our lives. Yeah, that's such a great concept. I really look forward to thinking and, and reading more with your PhD as it grows and as you continue on the journey. Thank you so much for all of your fascinating um, and wonderful answers to my questions. So that's it today for this episode of Media Futures Spotlights. For more info about the Media Futures Hub, visit us at mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Spread the word as well to your friends, colleagues and students. Special thanks today to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Bronwyn Miller. This podcast was made possible by funding from School of the Arts and Media at UNSW Sydney. Thanks for listening, take care, and we'll be with you again soon.